you have a Bible, I hope you do, uh, would you turn with me first to the book of Acts and the 17th chapter. I'd like to read a familiar account to you, I'm sure, if you're a Bible reader. If you're not, you should be. Beginning at verse 22, Paul's uh, visit to Athens. Oh, please stand. Different habits in different churches, I guess. This is God's word, and it is true. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an idol with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor does he serve by human, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like, a, is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of his and of this he has made, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead and then they heard and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this may god bless the reading and our thinking about his word let's pray to that end Our Father in heaven, thank you for the words of history, the words of uh, your apostles and prophets, and of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Attend our study of your word this morning, we pray in his name and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Several years ago... I stood on that pile of rocks just down the way from the Parthenon where Paul gave this speech. It is literally a pile of rocks. But maybe uh, you'd be interested or maybe you know the story behind this particular situation. In the 6th century BC, the people of Athens were experiencing a terrible plague. And though they were very religious, it seemed that none of the myriad of gods of the Greeks 
were helping the city at all. And so someone suggested that they go to Gnosis in Crete, and they thought that they would find there a prophet who might be able to help them. And so Epimenides was called. And Epimenides came to Athens, and he told them that there was obviously one God that they had left out in their worship. And if they would sacrifice to this God, he might hear their request and heal their diseases. The unknown God. They did, and he did. Very soon, the plague was ended. And so from the time of the 6th century B.C. until the time when Paul entered and climbed up on the Areopagus there, there was an altar to this unknown God. Paul does a very interesting thing in Athens. His usual process in his missionary journeys was to first go to the synagogues where the Jews would meet. And as he came into the synagogues, very often by God's providence, they would say, "Uh, well, brother, do you have anything to say to us? And Paul would rub his hands together like this, and he'd say, oh boy, do I have something to say to you. And he would begin to talk to them. And he would talk to them about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they knew what he was talking about. But now he enters into the city of Athens, and if he were to talk that way, they would think him silly. He couldn't afford to do that. So what Paul does is he takes these very wise, smart philosophers, thinkers in Athens. And he takes them all the way back. Remember that book many years ago now, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's what Paul does here. He takes these philosophers back to kindergarten. If you look at what he says here, he says, okay, now the God I'm talking about the theos that I'm talking about, this God made the world. And he does not live in a temple made by human hands. You know what we do with our children, some of you children, uh, the catechism begins with, who made you? No children's catechism? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. And it goes on from there. You see, this is exactly what Paul does in Athens to the philosophers. Who made you? Not how did you make God, but who made you? God. What else did God make? The heavens and the earth. How do we know God? How do we know God? Well, we believe we know God by means of his revelation to us. He reveals himself in the creation. He reveals himself in history. He reveals himself uh, in the word of God. He reveals himself in Christ. He reveals himself by his spirit. One of the ways in which God reveals himself is by the names that he uses to identify himself. 
God's names are often connected with some of the attributes of God or the characteristics of God or the nature of God. We read in Psalm 9, those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, a thorough study of the names of God cannot be done, but I'm going to be with you for the next two Sundays, this one and the next two, so I thought I'd put three sermons together and uh, introduce you to this whole concept of the names of God. And hopefully you'll take this, or maybe you've already done it, but go back to your Bibles and look for some of these names. God does not forsake his name. That's the reason why it's such a heinous sin to use God's name in vain. To just say, oh my God. Because usually when we say, oh my God, we're right back in Isaiah 44 where we have created some God that we bow down to and worship. We don't do that. We revere God's name. For God is serious about that. To speak of God in a flippant, careless, unthinking way is dangerous because this God is the one who has called us to himself. And so what I want to do for the next uh, couple of weeks is to look at you, uh, look with you at uh, three of those occasions in history when God revealed himself to his people by a name. And this morning, I want you to turn back to the third chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Again, very familiar passage, and we'll look at this a little bit together. Let me read just the first 15 verses of Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he took aside... uh, When he saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the uh, of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, that passage is packed, and I promise I won't keep you here till 2.30, maybe. Moses, part of the family of Israel, God had already revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as the Lord. I'll come back to that next week. But that was, there's a real problem. Because in chapter 1 and verse 8 of this book of Exodus, it tells us that uh, after 400 years, a Pharaoh grew up, and he didn't know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know nothing about Israelites, except that there were a mess of them in his land, and he had oppressed them. In fact, they had descended into Egypt, and... For those 400 years, God had been silent. There was no communication from God with his people, as far as we know, in that time. And the story had been told that, yes, God had changed Abram's name to Abraham. God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. But the people of Israel were thinking to themselves, what good is it? What good is it to be a child, to be the descendant of Israel? The fact is, they were slaves. The fact is, they were being oppressed in very many ways. The fact was that they were being used by Pharaoh to show off the power of his gods. In fact, he thought he was a god that should be worshipped. And so the interesting thing is that though they were oppressed in their slavery, and though God had been silent for all those years, yet in their distress, the people of God called out to God. They called out to God. And in this verse, in verse (coughs) 7, we're told, and God heard their cry. And having heard, God will come to them. And now he will show them and declare to him, to them, that he is God. First, though, he comes to Moses. And he appears to Moses in the wilderness as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
verse 6, in order to remind Moses that he had indeed made a covenant with their ancestors and that he will keep those covenant promises to his people. Now, what is it that God reveals? What is it that God tells Moses here, tells the people of Israel here, and in fact, tells us here? Over in chapter 6, God reminds Moses that he had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. That is, God who is enough. That was his other name, perhaps a more basic name that he was known by. But now, he says, I'm going to make myself known. And that word, make known, means to understand. It means that while they have... while they may have used the word God or the Lord, they did not understand its meaning. What, is it, what does it mean to be God? And one of the major points that God wants to make with Moses that he is that he is the same God, the one God that had revealed himself to their forefathers so many years ago. It's a classic way to understand the Bible. And I'm sure your pastor has told you this, that there are progressive revelations. As the Bible goes along, we learn more and more and more. And one thing adds to another until we get to the consummation of the promises of God in the Old Testament with the fulfillment of them in the New Testament. And so back in chapter 3, and there's a lot here. Again, I say, Moses... Even as he stood beside the bush there, hearing the bush talk, just think about that for a minute, hearing the bush talk to him, he knew that he was going to have a problem when he went back to Egypt. He knew that if he went back to the Hebrews and said that their God or their fathers had sent him, they were going to ask him a question. And the question was going to be, what is his name? What is the name? Well, what would you think? He'd already said, I'm the God, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or maybe go back to Abraham, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. That would have been a good guess. God doesn't use those names, does he? What does he say? Here's another name, Moses. Here's a name. This is my name. I am. I am. Now, you know the Hebrew lesson here. That's in your bulletin alongside the title of the sermon. There's those four Hebrew letters that uh, are make up the word that is not pronounceable. Is that a word? We can't pronounce it, and the Jews didn't pronounce it because they had no vowels with it. Vowels with it, and so they used it as the name of Jehovah or Yahweh, but they never tried to say that word. When they came to that word, some thought it meant to be. No, it's not that. It's just an utterly unique word. In the scripture, God said, here's the name. 
the Lord. I am the Lord. What's God saying to Moses and through Moses to his people and to us? Well, first of all, there's three or four things. First of all, God is asserting that he is a personal God. God is not Aristotle's unmoved mover. He's not Paul Tillich's, the liberal theologian's, ground of all being. He is certainly not George Lucas's the force. No. Or any other concoction or idea or concept that has been thought up by philosophers and movie makers through the ages. Here, with this name of God, I am. God says, I am a person. I am a person. Now, this is an important issue. Uh, Hebrews says, those who come to God must believe that he is a person. Before I mention that the modern concept of God is that God is, you know, the, the light of all the light and the supreme spirituality of all of our beings and the essence of all that is and God is everywhere and God is everything. And that might be all right for Oprah uh, or the latest guru uh, of the world. But it's not the God of the Scripture. The God of the Scripture says, I am. For if God is a person, if God is a person, if he is personal, then what? What do we know? We can speak with him. He can speak to us. He hears what we're saying. He cares. He answers. He acts. He rules. He judges. And so the entirety of the rest of the scripture is borne out. This is the stuff that God does because God is a person. And you can know him as a person. The second thing that God says is, I am. He speaks in the present tense. The very definition of I am is something or someone who is. Not something that we hope for in the future. Not something that existed back in the past. But one who is. He is present He is present always and as present. God is active. He's involved. He's interested in his people, in us. God is. The people of God in Israel, the very name would communicate that God was not 400 years on vacation in Africa or someplace else? No. God was there. And he observed everything that was going on in their lives. The third thing Moses tells us here is that God says, I am as his memorial name. 
there at the end. This is the name uh, that is uh, my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, you've been to the memorials in the big city just to the east of you, and they're wonderful memorials because they, they depict for us the sacrifice and the work of men who have uh, gone before us in Vietnam or in Korea or in World War II or others and have made our country what our country is. Well, it's the same here. This is God's memorial name, his remember name. And that's true in two ways. Number one, it's the name by which we remember God, but it's also the name by which God remembers God. God remembers himself. You may have heard the point in Genesis chapter 9 when uh, God gives the rainbow as a sign. And he doesn't say to, to Noah, no, when you see the rainbow, you'll remember the covenant. No, he says, when I see the rainbow, I'll remember the covenant that I made with you. It's very much the same in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The remembrance feast of the people of God. This is, you know, this is one of the very first things that I ever learned as a little child. It was my first big word. Because every Sunday I sat up front with my mother when my dad was preaching. And I'd look at that table. And on that table was this big long word. Remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's exactly what happens here. This is God who is, whose name is to be remembered even as he sacrificed his son. We remember with joy and with gladness the benefits that are ours through the work of Jesus Christ in his his life and in his death for us. But the same sacrament also calls God to remember that he has made promises to those who come by faith to Jesus. And he will fulfill those promises because he is a remembering God. I am God. I am is God's memorial name. And then the fourth thing that we look at is that this is certainly a very early revelation of God in a prophetic way. Because we find in the New Testament the words that Jesus Christ himself picks up from from Exodus chapter 3. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, but you're just 50 years old. You're not, you're not even 50 years, years old. And you said, you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. And there it is. That's Jesus. I am. Of course, that's that's the foundation for a whole other series of sermons, the names of Jesus. But there they are. The reality of this claim by God will saturate everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus does as Jesus. Why did they call him Jesus? He'll save his people from their sins. As the Son, as the Redeemer, as the light of the world, as the Good Shepherd, as the Lamb of God. And going all the way back to Egypt, 
as the king of all the kings. That's Jesus. Now in the context of the need of the Israelites in Moses' day, what was the essence of this this revelation of God that he brought to Moses? Well, in delivering Israel from their bondage in Egypt, God concentrated on one fact. I am, and all the gods of Egypt are not. I am, and all the Egyptians' gods are not. The plagues would vividly display this. I am, and they ain't. In fact, one of the primary principles and purposes of the plagues upon Egypt was to humiliate the Egyptians because of the gods that they worshipped. Look at them. All right? This is Hapi. He's the spirit of the Nile. How'd that work in the first plague? Not very well. This guy is, his name is Hecate. He's the frog god of utility. Well, he certainly fertilized some frogs in Egypt, didn't he? Or he didn't protect them from the frogs. This one is called Geb. He's the earth god with a seagull on his head. I worship a god with a seagull on his head. Now that's something to boast about, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. Who's next? Oh, this is good. Well, if you don't worship the god with the seagull on his head, you can worship Kephri. He's the fly god. My god has a fly head, said some of the Egyptians. Are you getting the point? No, not a fly, not a frog. My god has a cow for a head. Right? And God is saying over and over again, each time Moses brings a plague upon the Egyptians, Yahweh, Jehovah is, they ain't, I am, they ain't. And this goes right through the Old Testament stories. Remember Elijah, uh, remember, first remember uh, David before the great idol of the Philistines. In this time, at this point, in the form of a, a man, a giant man, yes, indeed. But what did David say to this man, this idol of Philistine, Philist, Philistia? You come against me with a sword and shield, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. He's God. You're not. Elijah And that wonderful, humorous confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Okay, prophets of Baal, all 400 of you, call on the name of Baal. Call in the morning. Call all afternoon. Call as much as you want. Cut yourselves. Do whatever you want to do. Scream and wail. And and I'll call on the Lord. And whoever answers by fire... Let him be God. The Lord is. 
Baal ain't. Daniel, Darius, I'm not going to ignore my God. I'm not going to ignore my God because of your threats, because my God is. And your lions can't do anything to me. And of course, remember Jesus. There is one, there is one God, I am. And Jesus Christ is his unique son. And all other gods and all other God figures, all other idols of the culture, all the God substitutes of wealth and power and fame and pleasure are nothing. Nothing to worship. Jesus said it plainly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. How is a sinful person? What do you do with your sin? That's the big question. You can get all into all kinds of discussions with people. What do you do with your sin? And the scripture says, and the God who is says, only a simple, trusting, repenting, believing faith and trust in the one who is, I am. Now finally, each week I want to tell you, okay, you know all that. What does God want from us in response to that? What response are we called to? Well, what what does God say to Moses there in Exodus? He says, get your shoes off, Moses, because the, the, the earth that you're standing is holy ground. You're standing before I am. You and I are standing every day in front of I am. He is. And God wants to be worshipped in holiness. This is the reason why you're here this morning, to worship God. But this worship needs to be carried out those doors, out that parking lot, into your life, into your conscious being, your family life, your personal life, your business life. As the body of Christ, yes, but also living in the consideration and the conviction that every moment of our lives we are living in the presence of the God who is. We can't read this passage, secondly, without recognizing that God is the one who has the prerogatives. Our God is a jealous God. Beginning with the law in Exodus 20. Yes, he gives it. God is the only one that has rights. God has rights. And when we begin to grasp this, we'll see that here's the real motive and the content, not just of our lives, but also of our church life and its ministry. God has prerogatives. He will be 
honored. The fact is that God is. Whatever else is worshipped is sinful because it isn't and it doesn't bring satisfaction and there are millions of people around us who simply don't know it because they've never heard it. And so we can begin just by speaking to people and I appreciated the Sunday school class this morning where our evangelism goes out from this place to tell people, my God is. My God is. And He's not been silent. He's not been inactive. But anyone who embraces the one who is with a humble and obedient faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, offering up life and skill and talents and energies to the living God, that person is the one who reaps the benefits, not only in this life, but for the life to come. Release from the bondage of sin and fear and anxiety and shame. Relief from the moral bankruptcy of our own efforts to please Him. And in Him who is, we have the inheritance of peace that will always guard the the hearts of the people of God. Those who come to Him must believe that He is and He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the revelation of Yourself to Moses, to the Israelites, even to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But most of all, we thank You that in Your Word, by Your Spirit, by the historical evidence that we see, that You have revealed Yourself to us as well. You are the God who is. And You're listening to this prayer right now, as weak and as uh, insufficient as it may be, The cry of your people comes up before you and you hear because you are a personal, present, and remembering God. Hear us as we meditate on these things this morning and may we do so to your honor and glory in Christ. Amen.